It's the Coats and Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service for Tuesday, July 7, 2020. On today's episode, we have a full hour of In the Headlines with Hershey Dwoskin. Hershey, take it away. Hi, everyone. Uh, glad to be back with you again. Um, last week, I spoke about uh, the issue of um, annexation in Israel. Uh, and this time, I'm going to... Uh, stay in the Middle East, but change subjects completely. And I was inspired by a, um, a notice that in Turkey, the government decided to take the famous uh, Hagia Sophia uh, Museum uh, or church in Istanbul and turn it back into a mosque. Now, if any of you were have ever been in Istanbul, for sure, for sure, you've seen this building. It's one of the world's most famous structures. Um, it was built as a church starting in five, the year 532. And it lasted as a church for close to 900 years. It was the biggest church in uh, the world, certainly at one point. Um, it was the inspiration for many different churches, especially in Greece, the round ones with the round top on top. Uh, and um, it lasted as a church until 1453. That's the year that the Muslims conquered Istanbul, conquered Constantinople, renamed it Istanbul, and immediately changed it from a church to a mosque. Now, how do you change an enormous structure like that into a mosque? All they did was they took out all the statues uh, um, that were there, all the icons, all the statues, the screen that separates the priests from the uh, congregation. Um, they, in many cases, but not all cases, painted over the... Um, the pictures of the Holy Families that were, that were painted on the walls. And uh, then they built minarets, and then they built a prayer uh, niche to show where the East was. They installed a little platform for the um, Imam to speak at, and it lasted in that way um, uh, as a mosque from 1453 until 1930, around 1930. So uh, 600 years it served as a mosque, and 900 years it serves as a church. And then what happened in 1930 was that um, with the dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire after the First World War, a secular type government took, play, took over under Mr. Ataturk. And Mr. Ataturk was uh, a very strong secularist. So he believed that religion belonged in the home and not in the public sphere. And he also believed that religion was old fashioned and he wanted to turn Turkey into a modern country. And so he forbade the public expression of religion in almost all spheres of Turkish life. And what he did was he turned this mosque into a museum. And he took, he left all of the trappings, all of the uh, 
the Islamic trappings of the mosque. Um, and uh, they even restored a lot of the Christian um, artwork that was there in the building. But he turned it into a museum which was visited by literally millions of people from 1935 up until today. And anybody who's ever been in that building and looked up at the ceiling, looked at the walls, uh, would notice that this is uh, a wonder of the world. In fact, the UNESCO, the United Nations uh, Education Scientific Organization, listed it on their um, uh, buildings of note, and that's the status it's been to up until today. However, Mr. Erdogan, the, the president of Turkey, uh, from the second that he took power, he wanted to reinstall or reestablish Islam as a public face of Turkey. And so little by little, he added Islam into the public uh, life of the country by establishing religious schools, by promoting Islamic holidays as public holidays, um, by promoting um, Islam as a way of life in the country, in public, uh, especially in education, lower education, middle education, and even in universities. And um, uh, being uh, a, a sort of a kind of a leader in the um, anti-secular movement in the country and the pro-religious movement in the country. And so he promoted the idea of holding Islamic prayers in the museum, even though it wasn't a mosque. And of course, one thing leads to another. And his latest uh, program is to change back this building into a mosque uh, from a museum. Of course, this would go against the UNESCO's uh, guidelines, but I don't think he cares much about UNESCO. And he cares more about his political um, his political future. Now, this is not the only way that Turkey made the headlines this week. Uh, there was a naval confrontation between a Turkish war, a Turkish uh, warship, we'll call it, and a French warship in the Mediterranean. And uh, they came very close to each other. And uh, What's all the more ironic is that Turkey and France are supposed to be allies in NATO. Now what caused this confrontation has to do, believe it or not, with the Libyan civil war that's going on and has been going on in Libya for the past five years. Uh, this civil war was caused by the downfall um, uh, of uh, the um, uh, previous Libyan uh, government, Mr. Gaddafi, and no clear winner in the replacement of Mr. Gaddafi. And so there were sort of two separate governments that were established in Libya at the same time. One in the west uh, of Libya, in the capital Tripoli, and one in the east of Libya, in the second biggest city, Benghazi. And these two sides have been fighting each other uh, militarily for a good four or five years. The uh, government in Tripoli controls much less of the country, but is recognized by the, uh, the United Nations as the official government. The government in the East, led by a military general, 
has been trying to overthrow that government now for a long time. Of course, needless to say, international um, involvement is there and uh, supporting the um, upstart Mr. Haftar has been um, Egypt, uh, a lot of the Arab world, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and supporting the um, government in Tripoli has been uh, most of the European powers as well as Turkey. And so these two sides have been facing off now for a long time. Now, uh, what's in it for Turkey in this particular civil war? The government, the, the government of Libya, which is the official one recognized in Tripoli, the capital, gave to Turkey the rights to monitor and to use uh, the Libyan um, uh, ocean rights, in other words, the the, um, the rights to uh, look after and look over all of the economic zone that Libya has in the Mediterranean. Now that's a huge win for Turkey because Turkey in essence at this point has no uh, oil or gas resources of its own. And by being able to control the oil, the sea-based gas and oil resources of Libya gives it a huge um, advantage. Coincidentally, and you all may have heard about this, uh, Israel and Cyprus have found gas in the Mediterranean. There's far more gas in the Mediterranean that Israel could possibly use on its own. It's already uh, exploiting uh, one field and, and um, and using that field for its domestic use, but uh, it has much more uh, gas resources that it needs to export. And the plan was to build a pipeline from Israel to Cyprus to pick up the gas that Cyprus has and then ship that gas from Cyprus in a pipeline to Greece. Needless to say, uh, Turkey, uh, which occupies the northern half of Cyprus and uh, which wants to keep that half, that wants to disrupt this plan. Turkey and Greece never got along all that well. Turkey and Israel for sure don't get along well. And this claiming of some Mediterranean, um, uh, Mediterranean, um, let's call it uh, rights to control pipelines under the ocean, uh, means that um, Turkey is saying, that uh, what it got from Libya is enough to divert or, or prevent a pipeline being built from Israel to, um, to Europe. So that's a second uh, piece of intervention that happened this week, this confrontation with the ship in France. And um, the uh, third one is uh, uh, its ongoing participation in the Syrian civil war. And um, this uh, civil war has been going on since 2011. Uh, Turkey took the side of the rebels and uh, Iran took the side of the government and along with Russia. And the government has been winning the civil war and Turkey and its allies have been losing the civil war. 
Um, Turkey has absorbed millions of Syrian refugees from the civil war and has threatened Europe with opening its own borders to allow these refugees to go to Europe. And in fact, one day this past month, not, not the month of July, but the month of June and May, they did briefly open the border and a flood of refugees tried to cross the border and got stuck in no man's land. And so this is another point of conflict between Turkey and Europe. And um, Turkey feels that it is getting, uh, doing all the work and getting none of the rewards for looking after these uh, more than million refugees that it has accepted from Syria and has settled uh, and given health care and given education to. Um, the, uh, the, um, the other great conflict that Turkey has had with the Western world and with NATO in particular is that um, Turkey bought a missile system from Russia. Even though Turkey and Russia are, are con in conflict in Syria, Turkey still used its kind of ability to get under the skin of the U.S by buying a, a missile system, guided missile system from Russia. And the United States threatened to not sell arms, especially uh, high-tech uh, F-35 jets to Turkey because they said, well, the Russians who are using the missile system will figure out the uh, guidance system of the planes and then they'll get all the secrets of the F-35 um, warship. Uh, F-35 uh, jet fighter. So uh, uh, this put the United States and Turkey into a big uh, conflict and it dragged in NATO along with them. Um, the uh, the um, ongoing um, anti-Israel uh, propaganda in Turkey is another thing that has gotten a bit under the skins of the Western world. And um, so Turkey has been in a kind of an odd position then of uh, being a member of NATO on the one hand and being a, a bit of an enemy of the European countries on the other hand. Uh, this status was uh, solidified uh, a long time ago when Turkey applied to be in the European Union and the European Union turned Turkey down flatly. And the reason they got turned down was not for economic reasons, but for the fear that if Europe opened itself up to Turkey, then Turkish people would be allowed to emigrate to Europe en masse. And Turkey's population of 80 million people, a poor 80 million, we'll call them poorer people, was a cultural and uh, threat to Europe to by, by if they would emigrate en masse into, that, into Europe. And so Europe turned them down and that turned Turkey against Europe and against Western values and put Turkey in the hands of Erdogan who has been the uh, successful uh, prime minister and later president of Turkey for close to 15 odd years now. Um, uh, and uh, Mr. Erdogan in Turkey used a kind of a nationalistic uh, uh, 
Islamic, nationalistic, and kind of dictatorial, anti-press, anti-openness, uh, anti-liberal ideas to impose his values on what was before a secular state in, in Turkey. But like other strongmen in uh, the world, uh, I would say like um, uh, some other kind of uh, authoritarian leaders and anti-liberal and anti-press leaders, anti-freedom of the press leaders, the people sometimes get tired of this message, uh, maybe as in the US. And in the last uh, municipal elections in Turkey, they threw out the candidate supported by Erdogan in both Istanbul uh, and Ankara and Izmir. The three biggest cities in the country tossed out the, um, the nominees of the party of Mr. Erdogan, the AK party, and voted in liberal members. This, this was so annoying to Mr. Erdogan that he canceled the Istanbul election and ordered it to be rerun. Istanbul is the biggest city in Turkey by far, one of the biggest cities in the world, as you may know. So they reran the election, which was closely won by the liberal candidate on the first go around. The second go around, all that did was made the people angry and they voted in the liberal candidate by something like 60 to 40 um, percent of the vote. So Mr. Erdogan feels as if he's on a back foot and that it may possibly be that the country is getting tired of him. And so by pulling a populist move like the, um, the re-Islamization of the uh, famous Hagia Sophia uh, monument, uh, that he might gain um, political support in a country which is 99% uh, Muslim in their affiliation. So this is really news. It's news to everyone who's ever been to that city and been to that monument and marveled at it and um, having, it, having, having its nature uh, changed from a monument to a mosque is certainly a statement that will, uh, if he pulls it off, that will, you know, be uh, uh, one which the whole world will hear about. Now, um, let's talk just a little bit about the Middle East in general, spread it a little more. Let's talk about the effect of COVID on the Middle East. Um, Iran was one of the very first countries to be affected outside of China, and they had an enormous enormous amount of cases which were probably never counted properly and an enormous amount of deaths which also were never accounted never accounted properly the official figures for iran in cases today is a quarter of a million um, for turkey it's 200,000 but uh, even assuming that iran vastly undercounted the deaths in that country uh, the uh, death rate in all of the other countries in the Middle East is far, far, far below that rate of Europe uh, and the US. Even if, even if 
those death rates are undercounted. Nobody can, you know, know exactly what the real figures are, but the figures in countries like Egypt and Iraq, the United Arab Emirates, um, Palestine territories, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, uh, the death uh, numbers are drastically below the U.S. So to give you an example, supposedly Jordan has had 10 deaths of COVID so far. A Lebanon, 36 deaths. The Palestinian territory, 17 deaths. Uh, the United Arab Emirates, three deaths. Iraq, seven. Uh, no, uh, yeah, uh, the Palestinian territory, seven deaths. The rate per 100,000 people uh, ranges anywhere from uh, three or four up to uh, 14 or 15 per 100,000. Uh, contrast that with the United States where there's 40 uh, deaths per 100,000. Um, or Canada which has 23 deaths per 100,000. So for whatever reason, the Middle East is way below those numbers. Now, even though the Middle East is, a, is an area where people lived, live close together, many live in overcrowded cities, many have no modern amenities, no large freezers or refrigerators to store food in, where they have to go to the market every day or second day, uh, where um, public transport is the common and cars are not that, are, are not affordable for most of the people. And the, and the question is, why is this situation uh, as it is? And the answer is, we really don't know. We really don't know. There's so much about this disease that we don't know that we don't know why it is that so far in the Middle East, the, um, the uh, incidence of COVID is lower than in Europe or, or, or America, and the death rate is also much lower than Europe or America. A couple of ex possible explanations are that they have a much younger population on average, um, that older people don't live in old age homes, all crowded together in, in, you, know, uh, in, in you know, nursing care homes or, or older homes, that uh, families live together, um, uh, parents live with their, with their children and grandchildren, and that, that may well be a reason why the disease hasn't sort of spread and had the ill effects that it has had on the Western world. But Iran was hit very hard and very quickly, uh, but it seems as if using the, um, the strategies that are well known, that the, the uh, spread of COVID in Iran has slowed down quite a bit. Um, um, now, uh, what else is happening in the Middle East besides in Turkey, which we've spoken about? Um, the Syrian civil war, which I mentioned just before, uh, which started in 2011 and has not yet finished. The Syrian civil war started when Syria had about 25 million people living there. 
more than half of the population has had to move because of the civil war. Uh, over one-sixth or almost one-fifth of the population have left the country altogether. Uh, much of the country has been physically damaged, um, especially in the areas where there was heavy fighting. The uh, Civil War was sort of at a stalemate for a long time, and it looked at certain points as if the the rebels, we'll call them the rebellious forces against Mr. Assad, were going to win and kick him out of power. But the tide turned um, maybe two or three years ago. Uh, and that has to do with the involvement of foreign powers in the civil war itself. So the civil war started in Syria because there was no economic um, progress in the country where people were feeling frustrated with the dictatorial and the kind of concentration of wealth and power in the hands of Mr. Assad and his family and his supporters. And uh, the same Arab Spring that happened and started in Tunisia and spread to other countries in the Middle East, including Libya, including Egypt, uh, including Syria and Iraq, uh, that Arab Spring uh, uh, took place in Syria, but unlike in all the other countries where things were resolved one way or another pretty quickly, the civil war just kept on going in Syria and hasn't ended. The uh, outside world took quick notice of that war in Syria and decided to line up on one side or another in order to help their own uh, interests. So for example, in, on the government side, Iran quickly joined as an ally of uh, the Assad regime. And that's because the Assad regime was in the hands of the Shiite, of a Shiite minority sect. And Iran being the champion of all the Shiites in the world said we will support um, the Assad regime. Much later, the Russians came in on the side of the Assad regime, and that's because the Russians saw a vacuum in the Middle East that they could exploit. The Russians have had a access to a port in Syria called Tardis, which is a uh, year-round port, which when the civil war started in uh, in 2011, the Russians didn't have any uh, real um, access to a warm water year-round port um, that they themselves owned. So uh, the ports on the Baltic are frozen over in the winter, St. Petersburg, for example. The ports in the Arctic, like Murmansk, are frozen over in the winter. And Russia, with this huge territory that it has, and with a small, with a Black Sea coast which it has, didn't have a warm water port that they owned. Now they did have the use of one in Crimea, in Sevastopol, which, but that belonged to Ukraine at the time, in 2011 when the civil war started. And so when Syria gave Russia unlimited access to their port of Tartus. Russia said, oh, this is fantastic. 
and they brought warships into that port uh, through the Bosporus, which passes through Turkey, which is, an, which is a, a free passageway between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. And so the Russians were happy with Syria for that and didn't want to lose access to that port in case the uh, opposite side won. So Russia and Iran and the Assad government were on one side. On the other side, the rebels were mainly of the Sunni Muslim um, uh, sect, and they were supported by various powers in the Middle East, like um, Turkey, for example, uh, like the United Arab Emirates, for example, uh, like Saudi Arabia, for example. And um, the rebels against Mr. Assad, unfortunately, were never united, ended up fighting among themselves. One stream of those rebels turned into the Islamic State, which of course caused all kinds of separate mayhem and murder in both Iraq and Syria. And because of this lack of unity, they were never able to get together to properly confront the Assad uh, military regime, which won uh, one victory after another, but, but the fighting was more or less at a stalemate. When Russia came into the picture, Russia uh, used uh, aircraft, and um, those aircrafts were the ones which were able to turn the tide of the war. They often bombed civilian targets, um, and were able to give cover to the Syrian forces to advance on the rebels, which, are, which were and are today concentrated only in a small pocket of territory in the northwest of Syria uh, called Idlib, the province of Idlib. The other fighters against the regime of Assad were the Kurds, because the Kurds in Syria were a long neglected minority of about 15% of the country. They fought very strongly against the Islamic State. Uh, they were helped by the Western world and originally also helped by the US. But at one point, the, the uh, United States, Mr. Trump, decided to uh, be buddies with his friend, Mr. Erdogan. And Mr. Erdogan was against the Kurds because he was afraid that they might encourage a kind of a separatist movement among the Kurds living in Turkey. And so he convinced the United States to stop helping the Kurds after the Kurds had defeated ISIS. The United States said, sure, we'll, we'll get out of here because the United States under Trump has no interest in spending money abroad or helping its allies abroad. And so they just plain pulled out of the territory and uh, the uh, Turks moved in. Uh, the Turks took away territories from the Kurds, the Kurds in Syria. And uh, they are the ones who then uh, consolidated their power along the um, Syrian-Turkish border. In fact, they actually sent real Turkish soldiers into Syria not so much to help the Assad regime, but to get rid of any uh, Kurdish military presence along the border with uh, Turkey. And that uh, situation is, uh, is still going on to this very day. Um, 
At a certain point, however, the Turks have felt that they did pick the wrong side in the civil war and that they were spending too much uh, effort on that war. And they would like to come to some kind of an agreement to end the civil war um, with Syria, uh, in Syria. Um, and these efforts are ongoing. It's quite likely that, um, I, my guess is that this civil war will be uh, over sooner rather than later with some sort of a deal made between uh, Turkey and Syria and Russia and, and uh, this deal may uh, also be hastened by the fact that Iran has no real money and power left to be involved in Syria. Not only has COVID had a, an effect on that country, on Iran, but the fall of the oil price all around the world caused by COVID has left Iran with no cards to play. Uh, the boycott and embargo against Iranian oil has been strong. Against Iranian financial activities has been strong. And um, Iran is just basically like a swimmer kind of paddling for its life uh, w without the real strong incentive to keep on fighting in Syria. Uh, in any case, um, Mr. Assad is now relying in a way more on Russia than on Iran. So it, it may well be that this COVID is the sort of uh, incentive for a deal to be made to end the civil war which has been so devastating in Syria um, and, and, and so uh, disruptive of uh, life in the Middle East altogether. It's spilled over into Turkey, it's spilled over into Lebanon, it's spilled over uh, even involving Israel because um, Israel has been, um, while not involved in the civil war in Syria, not taking sides in Syria, Israel does not want Iranian penetration into the Middle East. It doesn't want the Iranians to be helping Hezbollah, which is the Shiite militia in Lebanon. And Israel has been bombing uh, Iranian targets in Syria off and on now for a couple of years as a kind of a warning for the Iranians not to, um, not to keep supporting the Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, you might have also heard of several very mysterious explosions that happened this week and even today in Iran itself. Uh, Israel has not taken credit for these explosions, but they all seem to have taken place inside the uh, Iranian nuclear facilities. And Israel has long suspected Iran of using those nuclear facilities to prepare some sort of a weapon. Iran claims that it has no interest whatsoever in preparing weapons, but it is doing research and it is using its nuclear uh, facilities for power generation. It should be noted, of course, that Iran has the world's second largest gas and the third largest oil reserves. Uh, and at a time when oil and gas are so cheap, uh, you would wonder why would they be doing nuclear research for power generation when they've got all that oil and gas that they can't sell to anybody else. 
So this is a an ongoing um, an ongoing issue in that in the Middle East. What else? Let's talk about Lebanon for a second. I mentioned it before. Lebanon is uh, Israel's neighbor to the north, Syria's neighbor to the west, and Syria's neighbor to the south. So it only has two land borders with other countries. Israel and Lebanon have no ties whatsoever, uh, uh, officially or even unofficially. Um, and it's a country which has itself absorbed a million refugees from the Syrian civil war. It's a country which has fallen so much in its power and prestige from the 1930s and 40s when the country was set up. It was the sort of economic hub of the Middle East at one time. It was the cultural hub of the Middle East. It was the um, uh, cultural hub in the sense of um, newspaper publications, book publications, uh, theater performances, music, art. Um, it was the place that the Middle East went to on holidays to get a little freedom to experience life in a society which wasn't so conservative. Uh, it was a country which back in the 30s had a sort of a 50-50 split between Christians on the one hand and Muslims on the other hand. And the political power and economic power was in the hands of the Christians and the military power as well. Uh, and this shifted uh, somewhat gradually over the last 50 or 60 years because of the, um, the differing birth rates in the country between the Christian population and the Muslim population. And so from being a 50-50 uh, split back in the 1930s, uh, today Christians in Lebanon are perhaps 30 to 33 percent of the population. And of course, their economic <clears throat> and political power has gone down somewhat accordingly. Um, the uh, shift in political power in Lebanon means that the Shiite, the Shiite population, which was um, the least powerful group among the populations in Lebanon, have now become a kind of the most powerful group or the blocking group in parliament, so that um, the uh, no government in Lebanon, including the one which is there today, is able to govern without the support of the Shiites. And the Shiites maintain the only military, um, a separate military uh, organization uh, in Lebanon. Um, after the Lebanese Civil War, which lasted from 75 to 1990-ish, 92, um, all of the militias were disarmed in Lebanon except for the Hezbollah because the Hezbollah were there to confront Israel, which had occupied uh, a strip of Lebanon from 1982 to 2000. And so the, the Hezbollah are dug in in South Lebanon they have a huge military uh, presence there. Um, and uh, they have a kind of a veto power over the government in the country. 
Um, Lebanon never had any oil. It never had any natural resources of its own. So it lived off of banking, holding money for Middle Eastern sheikhs and Middle Eastern billionaires and putting it in their banks. Uh, it, ha it had um, a, a lot of tourism from Europe and especially tourism from the Middle Eastern countries, from the rich oil countries like Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. Um, but again, with the COVID and the lack of tourism and lack of travel, with the fall of the price of oil in the Middle East, uh, with the responsibility to look after those million um, refugees from Syria. Remember, Leba uh, Lebanon's population was only 4 million, and it took in 1 million refugees, a quarter of the country, more or less. Um, everything went down in the country and nothing went up. Um, money that was sent from abroad to Lebanon by Lebanese working in the wealthy countries in the Middle East or Lebanese working in Europe or Lebanese even in South America and North America, uh, the slowdown of economies all around the world meant less money coming into that country. And so the country just borrowed and borrowed and borrowed to pay its bills until it could not borrow anymore. The value of the Lebanese pound dropped by 70% and Lebanon has defaulted on its debts. So technically Lebanon this month went bankrupt and what will happen, uh, nobody knows. But the country is in dire straits as is Syria, uh, also. Um, well, how about, uh, let me just check my time over here. Okay, uh, um, I have, I'll speak for another five minutes or so and then we'll do some questions. Tell, let's talk a touch about Saudi Arabia, the world's largest oil power, uh, the country whose cost of oil production is the lowest in the world. Uh, the country who was the biggest oil and is the biggest oil exporter in the world. Uh, the arrival of COVID has turned Saudi Arabia in a way upside down because the stopping of world travel, of air traffic, for example, uh, the uh, stopping of car travel uh, in, in large parts of the world, meant that the demand for oil has dropped tremendously and that means that the price of oil has dropped from 2014 when it was over $110 a barrel to very briefly this year where the cost of oil was minus $30 meaning that you had to pay an oil producer had to pay $30 a barrel to have his oil put onto a boat and got zero money in exchange. That was just a, a sort of a freak. Uh, but uh, the price of oil today is still, uh, you know, far below the cost of production in most of the world. And um, Saudi Arabia has tried to make a plan to wean itself off the sale of oil and develop other resources. But this will take lots and lots of time. And in the meantime, it has a population to look after of somewhere near 40 million people. There are also millions and millions of foreign workers inside Saudi Arabia doing everything from construction 
to healthcare, to education. Uh, and these people uh, rely on the wealth from Saudi Arabia to send money home. And so this whole chain that I was talking about of, of payments abroad uh, has been disrupted by COVID. And, um, and Saudi Arabia is scrambling, just like other countries in the Middle East, to figure out what to do. Fortunately for them, they have hundreds of billions of dollars of reserves in banks, unlike Lebanon, which has zero reserves. And um, they are able to kind of cushion the, the uh, effects of COVID by relying on those um, uh, savings. But of course, nothing lasts forever, and we don't know how long this uh, slowdown will last and how long the oil prices will remain low. Uh, we are, you know, in another class, we can talk about climate change and the shift from using uh, carbon producing fuels to uh, non carbon producing fuels. Um, but Saudi Arabia is affected by that as well. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, let's see if you have any questions. Let me take some comments or questions and we'll see where we can go from there. Um, Actually, while we, yeah, while we yeah. wait for, um, for the calls to come in, um, you mentioned earlier the COVID statistics in the Middle East and you yeah. speculated maybe that's to do with, uh, you know, people, seniors aren't necessarily living in senior homes and so on. Do, do we know if those numbers are accurate? What's the consensus there? Uh, no, no one really, no one knows how accurate they are specifically. Um, but um, uh, certainly in the case of Iran, it was shown that the government was underestimating the number of uh, deaths because they have satellite pictures of graves being dug by the hundreds and um, uh, bodies being kind of abandoned in the streets. And uh, the first wave was so fast and hard that for sure the government couldn't keep up with the numbers. But on the other hand, uh, once the things got under control, there's no, there was no payoff or there's no reason for a government to underestimate the um, number of casualties or the spread of the disease. And the reason I'm saying that is because once the disease is present in the country, even at a small amount, uh, it's to the benefit of the government to help people avoid getting it. And so if a government says, well, it doesn't exist in the country, nobody will do any preventive measures. Once they, they, they do, um, uh, you know, bring up the figures which they know to be accurate, um, it's in their interest to get people to behave properly. It's even in their interest to exaggerate the numbers the other way, to say there's more cases than there really are, because then maybe people will take more care of, of social distancing, wearing masks, um, you know, washing hands, etc., etc. So, there's no, there's no prima facie reason for a government to lie about the figures once it's established that the disease is present in the country. 
I at least I I I see it that way. And well, um, but would know, it be that was sort of a country's handling or mishandling of it with that factor in? Do you think into perhaps some? Mm, well, you can't hide the number of you 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 the number of sick and dead people are, are is where everything where the measure comes down to. Number of cases you can definitely play around with, mm -hmm. but you can't hide the hospitals being full of people or cemeteries being full of, of you know, uh, of uh, casualties. And um, uh, I, I understand you, you know, the point of saying, well, if there aren't a lot of casualties and the government is doing a good job and vice versa. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's even more important for the government to get the thing under control and, um, you know, to convince people that there is a real pandemic out there. Uh, and so, you know, to do that, they have to explain how many people have already died. Of this, you see, that would be okay. my, my take on it. We have a question uh, from Howard. Howard, yeah. uh, if you'd like to ask your question, you can go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Didn't I read today in Israel they had to lock down certain areas because they COVID increased greatly again? Yeah. Um, um, Israel's case cases have jumped from somewhere around a steady number that they had of somewhere like twelve to fifteen thousand. They jumped to thirty thousand like uh, in two weeks. So they've doubled the number of cases from the beginning. Of the of the infection, let's call it March, you know, let's call it March first, March first till two weeks ago. They've had the same number of cases in the past two weeks as they had from March first till uh, let's call it June, uh, July first. You know, so they have had a huge jump in cases. They have, but they still the country has still had you know less than 350 deaths so far, uh, which is a uh, death rate, I'm looking it up here, of four per 100,000 population. The United States has had 40 per 100,000, and we've had 23 per 100,000. And the worst places in Europe, like Italy, Spain, and France, and Britain have had in the 60, around 60 per 100,000. So their death rate is still very, very low. They're managing, they were managing well up until this past while when uh, things got out of hand. Um, so it goes to show that the virus is not weakening, that its catchiness is not changing, um, and that even countries that have done well up until now, like Israel, if something gets going, it can get going very quickly in an environment where people are not social distancing. Now, as you probably know, uh, the ultra-Orthodox population in Israel is the most affected, and some of the big flare-ups have also happened in um, Bedouin um, communities where the families are huge and where there also is no social distancing. So those are the two sort of, we'll call them weak spots in that society, and those are the ones that have been also the most affected uh, up until now. But still, relatively speaking, they're still doing okay, except that there is a huge uh, conflict between how much to lock down. 
And that's where the political pushback is coming. Um, the ultra-Orthodox population have said in their, the, the main uh, political party for the Ashkenazi Jews, the United Torah Judaism Party, said, if you close down the yeshivas, we're leaving the government. So that's, that's, that's where it's, you know what I mean? That's where it's at. It's a real political nightmare for the government as long as well as a health nightmare. And, and uh, how much do you lock, lock down versus how much do you risk political opposition? That, you know, that dilemma is the same in the whole Western world, but in Israel it has a special flavor because the ultra-religious are the ones who are most against the lockdowns. They have the biggest families, they live in the most congested conditions, and their whole lives revolve around the yeshivas and the synagogues, and um, they just don't want to uh, be limited in, in those ways. Howard, do you have another uh, question or comment? Uh, no, thank you. Uh, I have a question, uh, Hershey. I know yeah. that you know, whenever you see these um, science fiction movies where the aliens are invading, there's inevitably the scene where, you know, the Americans and the Russian jet planes are fighting together and the Israeli and whoever are fighting together. So do we know of, in this situation, do we know of countries working together or sharing supplies? Um, uh, it's, you know, where, where this question is the most interesting is in Europe. Because Europe is a union of 28 countries who come together to share a currency, to share borders, to share freedom of movement, of working, freedom of movement, of studying, um, and, uh, and to have a sort of a common bank which is supposed to be controlling the economic welfare of the whole European Union. And yet when COVID happened, it didn't happen evenly in all the countries. And it didn't affect all the countries in the same way. And so there were countries that had more in the savings bank, the piggy bank, and countries that had less in the piggy bank. And the stress that COVID put on Europe was, should the wealthier countries help out the poorer countries? And the same questions, the same arguments were made uh, as are made in, in, you know, in families and in other countries. You know, if we'd been so careful and saved our money, why should we give money to a spendthrift country, which is not, you know, saved up for, for a rainy day kind of thing. And also in supplies, if the supplies are limited of uh, PPE uh, and medications, why should we share it with them? Because our own populations, if we give away our medicine, our own populations will suffer and we'll be blamed for it. And so when you have a shortage of, of assets, these quarreling over the distribution of those assets becomes strong. And when the quarrels involve different countries competing against each other, it's even worse. Overall, I think the Europeans have done a very reasonable job in trying to resolve those questions. Um, but, though, you know, they're there. Those are the ones that that's where the that's where the quarreling is going on the most even even as we speak um and uh certainly in terms of a vaccine should a vaccine ever be um uh, come about uh they'll never have enough for everybody and uh the question is you know how do you dis decide how to distribute that vaccine 
So that's another question that's on the horizon because different countries from different companies from different countries are the ones doing the research and the countries where they're doing the research are expecting their own populations to get first uh, choice over those vaccines. So, uh, you know, that's how the world in a way is coming together for sure. From a scientific point of view, there's more sharing going on than it has ever been the case. Um, you know, companies are not trying to hide secret formulas from each other and come up with the first one. Uh, it's been decided that there won't be one vaccine, but there could be as many as 20 different vaccines and whichever ones come to market first can be used. And there's no reason to, to say, for example, that if a vaccine number one comes about and six months later a better one comes out, that you know a person can't get both vaccines, at, you know, one after another kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah, I was gonna. Have you heard this idea of challenge trials? The challenge oh yes, trials? sure, of course. Can you maybe just explain um, what that is and, and and let people know what you think? Oh, okay. Um, normally, to develop any kind of new medication requires uh, a lot of different steps and a lot of double checking and triple checking. Uh, the first thing is on a molecular level to see if this thing works. The second thing is once you, once you see that in theory it works, then you have to develop some kind of a practical um, uh, you know, vaccine, we'll call it. And then once you've got you know, the first vaccine, you have to see, um, the first test is, is it harmful? Because if it's harmful, then you might as well forget about the whole thing. And to see if it's harmful, uh, it's given to a very limited number of people just to see if it causes any bad results. Once you see, and most often it doesn't cause bad results. The bad results come sometimes, you know, uh, after thousands and thousands of people have used it and over time. But most of the time these things don't cause any harm. And so the next thing is to see, does it actually work? And to test out if it works or not is, is not so easy to do because you have to um, give it to enough people, to a sample size which is big enough, to see if there's a, you know, any sort of um, help or not. So for example, if you develop a vaccine, um, you, you have to test it in a way the, the safest way is to say, well, let's give it to a thousand people and see if any of them, a thousand unaffected people, and see if any of them develop the virus. But, you know, in some cases, it could take a long time for the virus to develop, and you want an answer, does it work or not? Because if you give it to a thousand people and they don't develop the virus, maybe they never came in contact with the virus, right? So a challenge testing is to say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to take a thousand people who are healthy and who don't have the virus, we're going to give them the vaccine, and then we're going to infect them with the virus and see if the vaccine works or not. So that's what the challenge is. The challenge meaning we're going to make people sick on purpose and see if our medication works or not. So obviously there's a risk because if you make someone sick and the, med and the vaccine doesn't work, some of these sick people can end up really sick. The idea of taking a young, healthy population is to sort of skew the odds. Now, I've read of a study which was uh, just published an interesting one, 
where they wanted to see if masks work or not. But instead of infecting people, what they did was they infected hamsters. So what they did was they took uh, a large population of hamsters and they uh, blew coronavirus germs onto them to see if they got sick or not. So they counted how many got sick. And then they took masks and they put them at somewhat of a distance from the hamsters and blew the virus onto the masks and threw the masks onto the hamsters. And then the third group was where they actually put masks right on the hamsters or right close to them and blew the same virus on these unaffected hamsters. And what they found was that the masks had a six, the, the close masks um, were 600% more effective than the no masks. In other words, they protected it by six times as much. Um, so that's how to start to test something without getting people sick, you know, in doing it. So the, the challenge uh, tests are to shortcut, short circuit, speed up the, the knowledge of whether the vaccine really works. And the people doing this are taking the risk of getting sick themselves, but they say we're the youngest, healthiest population. Um, a very well-known leader of this world uh, said that 99% of the cases of COVID end up with nothing, that they don't get sick at all. So if, the, if he's right, which of course he's not, then uh, the people doing the challenge are not risking anything by, uh, by um, uh, exposing themselves to the infection of the test. So that's what the challenge is. And it's ongoing. They're doing tests as we speak. And because of this speed up, uh, Dr. Fauci has said, it's quite possible that we'll have a vaccine before the end of the year. And other people are saying that by the spring, uh, it's likely to have a vaccine that is proven to work. Now, the next question is, what does proven to work mean? Let's say it's proven to work in 40% of the cases. Does that justify producing millions of doses and giving it to people, even though most of the time it won't work? Or do you wait for a vaccine which is 70 or 80 or 90% effective when you know for sure that that vaccine is going to have a great, um, a great uh, result? Now, the idea is, is that if you can get a vaccine that's 80% effective, the people who don't get the vaccine, there'll be so few of them around that they won't be able to spread the disease to the other ones because there aren't enough people close by who haven't been vaccinated that they could spread their disease to. So that's this idea of so-called herd immunity. You can get herd immunity by vaccination, or you can get herd immunity by having everybody get sick and the people who don't die then have herd immunity and then they can't pass the disease on to somebody else. But at this point in the um, COVID history, we're, we're not near herd immunity from people getting it because at the most, maybe 10% of the population have it, have had it, and you need somewhere around 80% for herd immunity. And of course, there's no vaccine available yet. So we're waiting for that also. Right. So that's your question. That's the answer. 
Good. Well, thank you very much. Um, just a reminder to folks listening, tomorrow's uh, episode of the Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast will be uh, book reviews from our librarians. So stay tuned for that. And Hershey, I know you're here next Tuesday at yeah. 2 p.m. Do we know what right. the topic is? Can you give us a sneak peek? Um, I'm, you know what? Uh, uh, there's been so much talk about the media and the media's uh, role in this whole thing that I might speak about that. But I'm open to all suggestions. So if you have one, and uh, you know, when I was giving classes, people would come up to me and say, well, why don't you speak about something so-and-so next week? And I'd say, okay. But uh, you could email me if you want. Um, you have my email, I think, uh, don't you? Um, yeah, we, we Angela can, we can. has it. Uh, so you could send the you know, request to her and she could send it to me. Um, or sometimes I, you know, I get inspired by what I read about in the, in the, uh, you know, in the week's news. And that's how I, that's how I came up with this topic, uh, uh, about the, uh, Sophia mosque. You know, what and, might be, what might be fun and maybe you've done this, uh, at the in-person lectures, but to give people a sense of what you read, how much you read, uh, it must be, it must be quite a. Oh, okay. Quite a subscription list you have there. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. But, but for those of you who don't know me, most of my time, I really spend, I'm going to show you, I'm going to take, I'm going to, well, okay, I'm not going to take my shirt off. But I'm going to show you, you know, most of my time I spend doing fitness and fitness is my passion. So for for those to, listening, sorry, for those listening on the phone, Hershey's <laughs> a bicep just broke through his camera and has now broken the internet. So Yeah, a, it's like I am in my 70s, but I, uh, uh, you know, I've done half Ironmans, I, I, I run, cycle, uh, I did 85 kilometers of cycling two days ago, uh, I run up the mountain from my house and back, so. Do, do you, you listen know, to podcasts or the news when you run, or do you listen to music? No, no, I don't. No, I, I read, I, I do mostly reading, mostly reading. Um, I don't like that idea of having things in my ears uh, for whatever reason. I just, when I started running, I did, they didn't have it, and I just never uh, got comfortable with it. But, okay. uh, you know, that's it. But I think, you know, uh, uh, that for us, for people of my generation, people who are in their 60s and 70s, physical fitness is more important than it is when you're in your 20s or 30s. And you have to find a way. You don't have to be, you know, as fit as I am, but you have to find a way to incorporate fitness into your routine. I would say daily, uh, but if not daily, as many times as you can do it because it, the quality of life that you'll have when you get in our generation is so much better than people who sit uh, and do nothing all day long. So that would be my message. Okay, well that is a good message to end on. So thank you for today's talk in the headlines with Hershey Dwoskin. We'll see him next Tuesday at 2 p.m. And we will see the rest of you tomorrow at 2 p.m. Thanks, Hershey. Thanks so much.